You remember the Sermon on the Mount? This was years ago. We, we went through the whole thing. And you know, sometimes you want to go back to basics. And sometimes you want to return to uh, the, those first steps and, and remind yourself what it's all about. And that, that's true whether you are a professional basketball player and the, the coach says, okay, today we're just going to practice dribbling. And you go, well, I make $60 billion a year. Or whether you've been a Christian for 60 or 70 years and the preacher says, you know, maybe we should talk a little bit today about what it means to follow Jesus as we go into a new year. We all, myself included, need these reminders of what it's all about. That when we follow Jesus, a disciple is literally one who walks after, and we walk after him. His disciples on this earth during his ministry literally followed him, walked after him, walked behind him, and there's something metaphorical in that. They watched him as he walked, and they began to walk like him. They walked in his footsteps. They followed him, and we follow him as well. And I fear that more and more in our culture, Christianity and religion and spirituality in general has become this thing that is very personal, very private, very individualistic. It's a vertical thing between me and God, and it's nobody's business but mine, and it doesn't affect anything else in my life except that very personal connection, and I tap into it maybe once on Sunday, maybe once in the morning when I say a quick prayer, but the rest of my life is separate from it. And while that is prevalent, it is disastrously wrong. It misses the gospel. Because the gospel is something that changes everything. The gospel is not just a vertical connection between me and my heavenly father. It actually involves horizontal as well. If you, if you want to have a cross, this is something that I used to return to very frequently. I got worried that maybe it was getting old and so I gave it a rest and now it's back. If you want to have a cross, you've got to have that vertical and that horizontal beam. If you just have the vertical, oh, me and God are okay, but you haven't got the horizontal, you don't have a cross. You've got a stick. And I think often when people are uh, encountering Christianity and Christians and even people who want to tell them the good news of the gospel, they see just the stick. There's no love. There's no understanding. There's judgment. There's there's anger, there's, there's elitism or self-righteousness, and so there's just this stick, and it feels like you're being kind of hit with a stick, and that's not going to save anyone. That's not going to win anyone. That's not even going to cause anyone to stop and consider the claims of Jesus Christ. If anything, that will just harden the sinner's heart to the gospel. No, we have to have the vertical, and as a result, we have the horizontal, our love for one another our beginning to show in our lives to manifest the love and grace and forgiveness and mercy that was and is Jesus' legacy. And you can actually take this metaphor a little further. Just as on a cross, the horizontal hangs on and is supported by the vertical, the same thing is true in our spiritual lives. Our relationship with one another, our, our relationships with our family, our coworkers, our friends, our enemies... They all hang on that vertical relationship with God. And, and so the second tablet of the Old Testament law, the Ten Commandments, it, it talks about how I deal with others. Thou shalt not kill. Thou shalt not bear false witness. Thou shalt not commit adultery. That hangs on the first tablet. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. You shall not take my name in vain, etc. That second of the great commandments 
Love your neighbor as yourself. It hangs on and is supported by the first, the vertical one that says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. By the way, this is all in the Old Testament. Jesus was quoting Leviticus 19.8 when he said that, love your neighbor as yourself. And he gets to the heart of this here as well when he says, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Love is action. Love's not feeling. The feeling of love is nice, but that's not the heart of it. That's a byproduct. And it's not always there. And it needn't always be there. Love is present when action is present. When you care for someone, when you reach out. Sometimes when you forgive, you don't feel it. But you've forgiven anyway. There's a wonderful story about Corey Tenboom after one of her uh, speaking engagements where she talked about how she had been in the concentration camps because she and her family had hidden Jews and they'd been discovered and she was a strong Christian and she was speaking about, uh, she was speaking about how hard it was for her in her mind to forgive all of the Nazis and all the people who had done so many horrible things to her. And as she was getting done speaking, she looked down and standing there was one of the guards, one of the SS guards from the camp where she had been. One of the guys who had dragged away family members to the gas chambers. I mean, you can't even begin, and I can't even begin to imagine the the hate that would bubble up and the sorrow and the brokenness and the emptiness. And he walked up to her and, and said, I don't know if you remember me, but your message really touched me. What you preached just, just touched me deep in my heart, and, and I want your forgiveness. And he reached out his hand. And she looked at his hand, and, and for what seemed like an eternity, thought, I can't touch that thing. I, I, I want to I kill this guy. I don't want to embrace him. I don't want to forgive him. And then the Holy Spirit said to her, you don't need to feel it. You need to do it. And the feeling will follow. And she reached out and grasped his hand and said, and when she took it, it felt as if through that handshake, through that clasping, all sorts of bitterness she'd been hanging on to just dissipated and disappeared. Now, we do want to make sure, of course, that we remember that passages that begin with therefore, well, they have a certain question connected to them. Do you remember what that question is? Right, right. We talk about that once in a while. Why is that important? Because otherwise you wind up with these little scripture snippets and they don't wind up meaning what Jesus or the apostle or the prophet intended them to mean. You've got to take it in its context As you study God's Word in 2017, remember the three rules of Bible study. Context, context, and context. And here the context is going all the way back to verse 13. There's this whole section of this sermon that Jesus preached that's about showing the law for what it is. Showing that that when the law, which is God saying, this is what you must do, cannot save us. And in order to show that, he takes the basic rules that we know, don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't murder, don't, that's the same thing, don't, don't steal, and he ratchets them up until they are so high a bar that no one could clear them. It's, it's easy enough to not kill people. Well, sometimes it's, it's difficult, depending on who you work with and, and, you know, what kind of drivers are around you. But, but we can do it. It's attainable. And yet Jesus says, but I tell you, if you harbor hatred in your heart against your brother, you've already killed him in God's eyes. Yeah, it's easy to say, don't commit adultery. All right, I won't. I will be faithful to my wife or my husband. He says, if you do it with your eyes or in your mind or in your heart, it's the very same thing in God's sight. 
And so he takes the, this idea that we can fulfill the law ourselves, and he blows it to smithereens. And then he says, I have come not to destroy, but to fulfill the law and the prophets. You can't fulfill it, so I came to fulfill it. And he makes it so very clear to us that the only way we could keep any of these laws, the only way that we could live a life that is pleasing in God's sight, is if he gives us a new heart. And so after he gets to this point of, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect, right? Just simply that. Then he tells us, ask and it will be given unto you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened unto you. You can't do it on your own, but come to me. And I will remake you. I will make you a new man, a new woman. I will give you a new spirit. And I will not stop working on you until you can fulfill these things. Therefore, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. That's the summary. That's the conclusion. Now, it's one of these little statements that's almost become a little adage, a pithy little saying that people don't even associate with Jesus in our culture. I remember when I was in Bible college, uh, my, my roommate's girlfriend, who was also, as it happens, in Bible college, one day said something about the truth will set you free. And she goes, is that in the Bible? And I said, well, yeah, Jesus said that in the Gospel of John. She said, oh, I thought it was just one of those things people say, like do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Many people would claim to live by the golden rule, as we call it, even if they don't really believe in Jesus. Even if, even if they don't really see him as being anything more than a human teacher, they would say, well, I try and, I try and be kind. I try and live by the, the golden rule. And it's become popular to point out that Jesus didn't fully even kind of invent this. It predates him by centuries. It's true. Confucius had a version of what we might call the golden rule. He said, do not to others what you would not wish done to yourself. We have to acknowledge that's kind of the same thing, right? Do not do to others what you would not wish done to yourself. It's even in Jesus' own tradition and heritage as a a Jewish teacher. Not only do we find it off in the East, we find it amongst the Stoics. Remember the Stoics? They had almost an identical statement. But Jesus would have been taught these sort of things growing up. We, we see uh, in the Apocrypha, so books that are in most uh, Roman Catholic Bibles, but not most Protestant Bibles, the book of Tobit. Anyone ever read Tobit? Okay, it's all right, you know, three out of five. But, but in Tobit, Tobit Sr. is charging Tobit Jr. with how he should live as he sends him off on this kind of vacation slash adventure slash pilgrimage. And he says to him, do not do to anyone what you yourself hate. Again, Jesus would have known this stuff. He would have heard it. And, and even more, there, there's, there's this sense that that sums up the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, what we call the Old Testament, what they call the, the Torah or the law and the prophets. Um, there's in the Talmud, this story about these two major kind of mega rabbis, kind of the Coke and Pepsi of rabbinic Judaism in, in the century before Jesus comes on the scene. You got Rabbi Shimei, Rabbi Hillel. Okay? And, and, and they kind of represented popular Judaism and, and people who wanted to know what the scriptures taught would go to these guys. And there's a story that a prominent Gentile uh, went to Rabbi Shimei and he said, Listen, I want to look into this Judaism thing and, and follow maybe your God, Yahweh, but I'm only going to proselytize and become one of you if you can teach me or sum up the law and the prophets, all of your scriptures, while I stand on one leg. 
And as it turns out, the rabbi had in his hands a measuring rod. And so he said to him, get out of here. And he started hitting him with the measuring rod. Yeah, we were talking about hitting somebody with a stick. That's literally what this guy did. And he drove him away. Understandably, I guess, he came in and said, you've been studying this your whole life, and I'll follow too if you can sum it up in 10 seconds. So the guy, undeterred, said, all right, I'll go to the competition. He went to Rabbi Hillel. Same thing. I will proselytize if you can teach me the whole law and the prophets, all of your scriptures while I stand on one leg. And Rabbi Hillel thought about it for a moment and said, what is hateful to you, do not do to your neighbor. That is the whole Torah, the whole law. The rest is commentary. Now go and learn it. Now Jesus certainly would have heard these stories, read these stories, known these things, coming up in, in the rabbinical world, coming up in his education, and so it's not as if he's just pulling this out of thin air. But there is an important distinction between all those versions that came before Jesus and Jesus' golden rule, is there not? All of those that came before were negative. They were framed in the negative. What you wouldn't want done to you, don't do to anyone else. If you would hate it, if someone did it to you, don't do it. It's kind of common sense. And Jesus turned it around and said, what you would want done to you, that do to others. And that seems like a tiny little difference, and in a way it is, but it opens up a whole new world of possibility and a whole new world of understanding and spiritual liberation. It, it, I would compare it to the harpsichord and the piano. Anybody here a harpsichord fanatic? You know, you, you get home and you turn on some harpsichord and, and just sit back and listen. The harpsichord sounds, you no, know, I'll play us a little harpsichord on the clavin over there. Huh? You know that, like from what, Amadeus or one of those, they're always playing the... How that works, yeah, keep it going. How that works is, you, not this one, this one's digital, but on a real harpsichord, when you push the keys, there's a little hook plucks a string inside. So you sit there, you push in all these keys, and it's almost like someone playing a harp inside the machine. It's, it's brilliant, it's ingenious, and a lot of pieces of music were written on it. But here's the thing, because it's just a hook plucking the string, it doesn't make much difference how hard you hit the button. You're still going to get more or less the same sound. Centuries later, we had the development of what they called the pianoforte, which means quiet loud, which we then just called the piano. We shortened it. We should have shortened it to forte if you've ever been around a piano and like some kids. But they, they called it the pianoforte because instead of a hook plucking a string, it was a hammer hitting a string. And depending on how hard you hit the key, the hammer would hit it either really hard and be loud or really soft and be quiet. Play us a little of that. You've heard the piano, right? Ah, that's prettier. Make it real loud now. It's this tiny little change, this tiny little difference makes for an entire whole aspect of music dynamics to enter into it and suddenly playing the piano becomes something that masters do masters like noel and when it's thou shalt not it's so limited you're on one plane yes thou shalt not is attainable that kind of rule don't do this we can do it we, we can follow them so if if you read you know thou shalt not drive northbound in a southbound lane 
All right, I can keep that rule. I'm keeping it right now. I'm not driving northbound on the southbound lane. Thou shalt not kill. Not doing that right now either. These things are attainable. But the problem with them is there's this kind of built-in assumed corollary to it that says, do not do unto others or they might do unto you. Am I right? Do not, right? Don't shoot people because you might miss and they'll shoot you back. Or, or don't cheat people. Because then someone else might cheat you. Word will get around. Don't spread stories about people because then they might spread stories about you. That's attainable. We can live that way. But that's human righteousness. By saying, not do not, but do, Jesus moves the emphasis from justice to grace. And he he changes this from a law to a lifestyle. And now suddenly it's something we need a new heart to keep. I can't stand up here and say, I'm not, I'm, I'm absolutely doing this right now on my own, of my own merit. I need Christ to do it. And it's not a rule. And I know you're thinking, wait a minute, why do they call it the golden rule if it's not a rule? Are you smarter than the guy who called it that? Well, first of all, the scriptures never call this the golden rule. But even if they did, that word that came about, I think it's in the 18th century that the golden rule became the name for this. And, and the idea was not a rule like a law written on a list of rules, but rather a ruler. Like a slide rule is a ruler. A rule, a straight edge. And what does that do? It, it shows you what's straight. And you can compare then how we're living to this golden rule that says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. What else does a rule do? Like that measuring rod that the rabbi Shimei used to to hit the guy and drive him away. Well, you could put that down and use it to measure and see if I measure up to what Jesus told me was the way I was supposed to live. And I find, inevitably, that of my own righteousness, I do not. In fact, it's hard even to translate this as over the top, as Jesus said it. When you look at the Greek, it, it literally says, therefore, All things, whatever at all, that you would want other men or other people to do to you, even that way you do to them. I mean, you you couldn't really say that more emphatically. Whatever at all you would want them to do to you. And, And I don't know, how is it that we buy bookmarks that say this? Or hang little wall hangings up that say this, as if it is just something easily attained, as if it's just another rule. I've even seen this listed on a list of rules. You know, in our classroom, raise your hand before you speak, no gum or candy, keep the golden rule. You know, as if it's just simple like that, as if it was a thou shalt not and attainable. We like it, but we don't always live it. And oddly enough, in our spiritual culture, where you can uh, have contradictions and you're comfortable with them, we can say we like it without living it. You ever heard about the theologian who finally got his doctorate, his, his doctor of sacred theology? And he was so excited about it, and he got a little puffed up about it, and he would always introduce himself, whether it was formal, informal, whatever, as Dr. Bob Smith. So I say, I'm Dr. Bob Smith, good to meet you. Hi, I'm Dr. Bob Smith. Okay, you want fries with that or what? So he's, he's all over the place with Dr. Bob Smith. And one day he meets him. He says, hi, I'm Dr. Bob Smith. And, and the woman said, oh, that's wonderful. You're a doctor. What kind of practice do you have? And he said, oh, no, no, I don't practice. I preach. That, that is the problem. Often we don't practice 
what we preach. We're content to say we love the golden rule. We love that Jesus taught these things. But Lord, do I have to live it with him or with her? This is even for that annoying co-worker or that loud neighbor. This is even for your spouse. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This is not just to be to be praised or to be preached. It is to be practiced. And believers, disciples who are following and walking after Jesus will live by these words. Now we do have to remember that the law mainly, primarily is there to do one thing, and that's to drive us to the cross. Jesus shows us that. The law is not here so that you can use it to make yourself righteous and pull yourself up by the lapels or the bootstraps into God's presence. If you think you can do that, just read the Sermon on the Mount. Be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. That's one of the rules. Yeah, can't do it. So it's there to show us our need for a Savior. St. Paul calls the law a schoolmaster. And don't think of like a really kind tutor being like, see this? No, this is like... Again, the yardstick or the ruler whacking you on the knuckles. Get over there. Kind of a a shove to the foot of the cross saying, you need to be saved. You need a new heart. You need to be a new creation. And that's what God will do for you in Christ. But for those of us who are born again, who have gone to the foot of the cross, confessed our absolute lack of merit, said, I bring nothing to the table but my sin and rebellion and been cleansed and washed of our sins, the law is still there. And now when we read that golden rule, and when we read all of the the Sermon on the Mount, and all of the teachings of Christ and the apostles, they're there as a ruler. They're there as the yardstick to say, this is what you should attain to, and now that God is working in you, you can get closer and closer to attaining it. You should not be satisfied to be this far from the top. No, continue, continue to reach. Reach toward the goal because God has sent His Son Jesus to die to wash away your sins so that you can be a new creation, so that you can one day be perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. This all reminds me of a story that C.S. Lewis tells in Mere Christianity. He said when he was a boy... He would often have toothaches. I'm not going to say anything about British people's teeth. It's too easy. And when he would have the toothaches, he knew that if he said to his mother, my tooth hurts, mommy, my tooth hurts, she would she'd come and she'd bring him some, some aspirin and rub it on his tooth and it would start to feel better and he'd be able to go to sleep. It wouldn't be bothering him, but he would always wait as long as possible because if he said that to his mom and his mom did that to his tooth, next day he's going to the dentist. And the dentist is going to start messing with all the other teeth that didn't even hurt to begin with. I think that's kind of where we are as a culture spiritually. Look at what's most popular. Look at what draws the largest crowds. People want something that will ease their pain in this moment. But don't start messing with all the rest of my heart. Don't start messing with all the rest of my priorities. Don't start messing with how I do this or that, my relationships. Don't get into all of the the deep stuff. Just address that one felt need or that one pain and make it better. Jesus says, I'm going to come in. And I'm going to take over. And I'm, and I'm going to get into this heart. And I'm going to take this heart of stone and turn it into a heart of flesh. And it's going to be a process. And sometimes it's going to be uncomfortable. But without that new heart, that golden rule is just that. Just, just a rule. Just another law. 
And we cannot keep it. We'll try and, and we'll, we'll cut ourselves some slack. And we might even call the slack we cut ourselves Jesus or grace or something. But we're not understanding that it has to come from being born anew. And when people don't have that new heart and they start looking at the golden rule, they often get very critical and start, start getting kind of overly clever with it, saying, well, do unto others as I would have them do unto me. That doesn't always work. I mean, what if what I would want isn't what you would want? Hmm. For example, if Noel is horribly allergic to nutmeg, which she is, and, and I love nutmeg more than anything, I shouldn't do unto her what I'd have her do unto me and make her some strudel with some nutmeg in it because it could kill her. By the way, it's not nutmeg. It's a different spice, but in case Noel has some enemies, I'm not going to tell you which one. But here's the thing. If we understand that in order to apply these things to our lives, we need the wisdom that God gives us and that looking at everything through this very self-centered, I'm, I'm the middle of the universe, everything revolves around me point of view is exactly the opposite of what Jesus is here teaching. I need to get out of my head. There's a New Year's resolution for you. To stop viewing the world from my point of view and to start viewing it from Christ's. Where when we look at the the hordes of people who are like sheep without a shepherd and they're acting stupid like sheep do without a shepherd, we don't get angry and annoyed and judge, and scoff, but we, like Christ, are moved with compassion, and want to help, and serve, and help to lead them to the foot of the cross, where they can receive eternal life. Pastor I had growing up, used to use this, this little acronym, and I'm, for whatever reason, averse to acronyms, I find them corny, and and usually kind of dumb, but this one's too good to pass up. It was joy, J-O-Y. He said that is the Christian way, it's the Jesus way of looking at the world. The way, if you're a follower of Christ, you look at the world with this point of view, J-O-Y. Jesus, others, yourself. That's humility. That's poverty of spirit. Jesus, it's about you first and foremost And then because I follow Jesus, I will serve others. I will do it just like he did. I will be willing to put on the the uniform of a servant, tie that towel around my waist, and get on my knees and wash the dirty feet of people who don't even get why I'm doing it. I'll be willing to do that. Jesus, others, and then myself. I'll do unto others, not because I want them to in turn do unto me, but because Jesus has freed me to do that. And it only works... It only brings us closer to him if that horizontal is hanging on and supported by the vertical. If I have been saved, if I have come to Christ, saying, in in the words of the hymn, naked come to you for dress. I have nothing to cover my shame. I come to you for that, for that linen garment. Helpless come to you for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. And when we have been in the the fountain of the blood of Christ and washed and made new and now he is working in us so that be perfect, which is, by the way, just in the future tense, you will be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect becomes a command and a promise. We know his working in us and we expect to see the evidence of that in our horizontal. And when we don't, when we feel the bitterness or the anger or the judgment coming out, We know something's wrong in the vertical. And we go back to him and say, Lord, I need a new start. I need a new day. 
I need you to wash away once again my self-centeredness, my self-righteousness, and fill me anew with your Holy Spirit and remind me again what it means to follow you. That's what it means to walk as a disciple of Jesus. It can be summed up in a couple things. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And we only can do these things because they form a cross. And Jesus died on that cross in order that we might be born again. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are our God, that you are the one who has kept the law, kept the law to the nth degree in ways that we never could, that you then died on a cross to pay the debt that we should have for breaking your law, for breaking it willfully and rebelliously, and that, Lord, you rose again, not simply because you are God and you couldn't remain dead, but for our justification, that when you came out of the grave, we now know we will not be forever drawn into the grave, but that, Lord, we will rise again as well. You are the firstborn from among the dead. Lord, we are so thankful for all of this. And we pray that in 2017, we would show our thanks by how we live. Not just how we have good quiet time with you and good prayer lives and are in your word on all these vertical things, but that, Lord, it would spill over into the horizontal. That we would live this year doing unto others as we would have them do unto us, loving our neighbor as ourselves. Lord, this is the greatest commandment. We know that we only can keep it because you will keep it in us. In your holy name we pray. Amen.